Hello, and welcome to Modus Scotus, the podcast that talks about anything and everything having to do with the Supreme Court. I'm Bill Kehoe. And I'm Venetia Hurtabees. And we've got two sort of not-so-awesome First Amendment cases to talk about today. Um, one having to deal with a censure from a uh, school board, a community college school board, and another having to do with billboards. So a riveting set of cases today. Boards and boards. Boards and boards. But we'll start off with a little bit of relevant legal news. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to talk a, a little bit generally about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Mm-hmm. I think it's been in the news everywhere. Um, <clears throat> back in 2020, uh, there was a police shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man. He, um, and I'm not going to get into the details of that case because we could, you know, spend hours talking about that, but um, the police shot him. Some people feel wrongfully. Some people feel that it, it was a justified shooting. Uh, he, I don't know if he was paralyzed, but he's, he did not die. Um, he was he was wielding a knife. Whether that was a deadly weapon or not, it, it, totally up for debate, but there was an incident and there was uh, protesting and rioting. During those Kenosha riots, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, a seven, he was 17 at the time, um, crossed over from Illinois to Wisconsin, I want to say. He crossed state lines. It was like like a 20, 30 minute drive to cross state lines. So it's, you know, not that far, but it was a neighboring community. He was wielding uh, an AR-15, a semi-automatic rifle, very common rifle in America. And um, he was generally the, the the thought was generally that he was going to protect um, businesses from looters and rioters, which had been happening kind of all summer through that, you know, COVID pandemic, everybody's bottled up. And through the course of the night, he ended up shooting three people two fatally. Um, he was up. F- the trial was recently was this past week or so. And he was acquitted on all counts. So that was some first degree intentional homicide, attempted first degree homicide, reckless endangerment, um, those types of charges. But the big thing I wanted to talk about was something that we came up in our bar prep with was the misuse of character evidence. So the the right-wing media was very been like, oh, this should have been a mistrial. This should have been a mistrial with prejudice. We should have never even had to go to verdict on this. The reason they're saying that is because there was a point in the trial when the prosecutor brought up a conversation Rittenhouse was having with his friends. I don't know how much before the actual event, but talking just generally talking about... Um, how he had like pointed a gun at somebody or something like it was essentially it was character evidence it was um propensity character evidence that uh, and that and that especially in the federal rules as well as the wisconsin rules of uh, evidence is a no-go you, you cannot uh produce evidence or admit evidence to the jury that you know they, they acted this way in the past that means there's a propensity for them to do it in the future uh, so the judge got very upset with the prosecutor, um, and that's why there was nearly a mistrial. But um, that didn't happen. He was acquitted, and everybody feels very strongly, or a lot of people feel very strongly on both sides, uh, whether he should have been acquitted or whether he should have been found guilty. But that's probably going to be, you know, that news story is going to be lingering with us for a while. Mm-hmm. Just as the trial was as well. Now that trial's over, yeah, it'll be, it'll stick around. Yep, but that's been in the news. That's legal news. Any thoughts on that? Um, I'm not going to lie. I kind of spaced out when you were talking. I had Ooh. to open an email because we had a question from Oh, a that's right. So this is going to be a new segment. <laughs> we're going to answer a question from one of our listeners. Well, if ever we have any. But yeah, so we did get a question from a listener recently. Uh, and she was asking about free speech in schools, going back to the Mahanoy case that we covered last year. And there's been a lot of issues apparently in Southern Florida where students are on social media and saying things that come back with repercussions from the school, um, expulsions or uh, some kind of reprimand for things that they say on social media. So there's a whole campaign that the 
southern portion of Florida is trying to promote with the help of apparently the Miami Dolphins. Uh, and it's called Think Before You Post. And it's meant to incentivize students to pause and really think about what they're going to say on social media before they actually click send or tweet or whatever it is that they're about to do. Uh, a lot of these cases, it looks like, are stemming from threats of violence. Uh, but the whole idea is that, you know, wherever you are, if you're in school or outside of school, if your posts are going to intervene with school functioning, then it could lead to repercussions. And the listener wants to know how that kind of interacts with the Mahanoy ruling. Mm -hmm. So just as a refresher, the Mahanoy ruling is the cheerleader case. The mm -hmm. cheerleader said had some choice words for the cheerleading program, uh, but posted about it on her Snapchat. Um and faced suspension from the cheerleading squad yes uh, so that was a there's a difference there's a stark difference in first amendment law because this is this goes beyond schools right there's a stark difference in first amendment law between criticism and other more serious things that are like an incitement to violence or uh defamation of you know that kind of thing so or a threat of actual violence or threat of actual right threat of actual violence so the just saying, hey, this school program is bad, I don't like how it's run, is one thing. But I don't like how that program is run. I want all of the cheerleaders to go kill the cheerleading coach, right? That is that is definitely, you know, that's a, that crosses the line, right? Mm -hmm. And I can see, especially for, you know, people who don't know, I could see how a lot of people are like, oh, they're not all that different. You know, the, the, the jump from one to the other isn't all that different. It's just a kid saying something stupid online. Mm -hmm. But that's where, you know, you have to, the culture, right? You have to change the culture around how people talk online, which is why I think it's probably a good thing that the Miami Dolphins are, you know, a big force in the cultural conversation. They can probably contribute to the conversation and say, hey, let's, we've got to, now we've got to adjust. Mm -hmm. Think about how we talk and especially when it's all recorded all online. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's the, the Mahanoy case kind of just sets the boundary of school, right? Right. It just says, yeah, sometimes uh, if it's going to disrupt the classroom, then we can probably, no matter whether it's critical or not, we can uh, police it. We can punish a student for it. But that still doesn't cut out the times when anybody saying something that was a threat or an incitement to violence or defamation uh, would be punished. So, good question. And, yeah, it, you can't say bad things online. Don't say bad things online. You can say bad things. You can't say threatening things online. <laughs> by, by bad things, I mean threatening things. Yeah. Like, I'm going to eat one of Venetia's packet of Dunkaroos. No, that's a bad thing, but that doesn't stop you from saying that. It's not threatening. Yeah, but when Venetia says, I'm going to murder you for eating one of my packets I of Dunkaroos. I can't say that, right, because yeah, right. a lot of people would know that's likely to happen yes exactly but anyway so yes that was a question from a listener and now we will move into the cases we have two cases before us today houston community college system versus wilson and city of austin texas versus reagan national advertising of texas incorporated both these cases have two things in common they both take place in Texas, and they both involve the First Amendment. My favorite. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start... to the question. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to start out with uh, Houston Community College case. Mm -hmm. So this was argued November 2nd. Um, the petitioner representing um, Mr. David Wilson is... He, he's a member of the Houston Community College board. There's a board of nine members... They're a school board. They make decisions about the school and all of that. They're elected to a term. Back in 2017 or so, uh, David Wilson started getting very critical of some of the decisions and behavior of the school board. So some of the allegations are that um, the board was becoming very corrupt. I know they were involved in the, uh, in the beginnings of the Community College of Qatar, which meant several multi-million dollar international trips for these school board members and bringing their families to Qatar and all that stuff. And uh, uh, Mr. Wilson was not a fan of this behavior and he was very vocal about it. So the board didn't like that he was vocal about it. 
shock. So they censured him. And that censure basically is, a, is basically a the board gets together and votes. Yes, we are going to like publicly admonish and condemn the things that Mr. Wilson said, which me, which also came with a a ruling that he was not allowed to have a higher office holding within that school board. And they also threatened if you continue to speak out in these ways we're going to levy other penalties against you. So the question, so they, they sued him. He's like, Hey, that violates my first amendment, right? Because this is a school board, uh, a public school board. The district court denied his challenge. Uh, the fifth circuit, however, held that the school board violated Mr. Wilson's first amendment rights by censuring him. So the question before the court is, does the first amendment restrict the authority of an elected body to issue a censure resolution in response to a member's speech. And? Nope. Well, that's my thought. But anyway, that's <laughs> previews. So, uh, arguing before the court, and uh, this is a three-part kind of uh, argument. It's mm -hmm. the, uh, the, school, the school board, Houston School Board, uh, the government, and the uh, Wilson. So, Wilson won in the Fifth Circuit, so he's defending. And the arguments on both sides are, are essentially from the school board's position. They're saying, hey, we have our own right to freedom of speech mm -hmm. under the First Amendment. The censure is just all that is, is we're saying we don't like what he said and he's free to speak. There might be repercussions, mm -hmm. but he's still free to speak. We didn't stop. And he, he made it very clear he wasn't he was going to keep speaking. Mm -hmm. Um that's essentially the government's argument as well. Um, <clears throat> the government's also saying that, hey, if we do this, if if we if you rule against us, this means that, you know, every time there's a political squabble between different factions of an elected body, mm -hmm. the court's going to have to get involved. You've set you're going to set this dangerous precedent, and you don't want to do that because okay. mostly they're political squabbles. And uh, Mr. Wilson's side, they're basically saying that the punishment, the threat, the threat of further punishment, uh, there were several, you know, there's a ruling, this, they actually ruled as the part of our rules, it's a, kind of denying him almost a due, it's almost like a denial of due process kind of argument they're making. Mm -hmm. And they're also, they're saying that all tied together, he has a valid fear of repercussions if they were, if he were to speak again, therefore this is a violation of his First Amendment rights. Right, and it's a chill on speech because other members who might feel the same way are not going to speak up either because they're afraid of the same repercussions coming against them. Yes, and that chill on speech is essentially the First Amendment violation. Right, uh, and it, oh, Wilson also made the point that, you know, unlike what the state had just said, that this is going to happen all the time, that this really isn't a common occurrence, that it's only come up, I think he said, 11 times in history. Um, so therefore it's not that big of a deal, you know, court, you can look into these case by case, uh, it shouldn't arise all the time anyway. So it's not really going to be this groundbreaking life-changing, um, change if you were to rule in this way. And I think some of the interesting, uh, arguments before the court and before the justices are how to look at this argument in the first place, uh, if we should look to history and tradition. And, you know, according to the first two advocates, if you go all the way back to pre-First Amendment or even after First Amendment, um, you know, committees and boards have always had this ability. It's just something that's basically built in that if a member uh, speaks in a way that's detrimental to the board or goes against what the board stands for, the board has the right and the opportunity to censure that member. It's just how it's always kind of been and how it still is today. And so therefore, it's not anything that needs to be changed. It's kind of inherent to the tradition of how all of these committees and boards work. Uh, and then the, the second argument that I was less clear on, I guess, is you know, when there's a violation to a committee rule versus when the committee just decides that they they don't like the speech that took place and so they're going to get together and determine, yeah, we didn't like that, so now we're going to say publicly that we didn't like that. If there's a rule, like a standing rule, you can't say stuff that's um, 
inherently in opposition to the committee and what the committee stands for, and you violate that rule, it seems pretty straightforward. I mean, you knew that you can't say stuff like this, and if you break that rule, then we're allowed to censure you. That's like notice. Uh, It's a little less clear, I guess, if there isn't that type of notice, and I think that's maybe where the due process comes in, that they say something, or a member says something, committee doesn't like it, committee wants to you know, step away and publicly censure that member, should there be a hearing first, should there be a discussion over whether or not that member can be censured, like all this other steps and procedural matter that could take place. Right. The the way I saw it, because this is a, I mean, this school board has corruption as the issue at hand, right? I think what, a lo- <clears throat> what comes to mind, especially in our politically charged uh, times, is if you've got just a, a board, pick a board, and you've got four members that say, I don't know, pick an issue that's politically charged right now. Abortion rights. Sure. So they like you've got four board members, and they're like, yeah, we're we're pro life, we're pro life, and you know we're you know we'd love to have conversations about how to you know find some middle ground, but we're pro life. Mm-hmm. Five board members are staunchly pro choice. The concern is is that the the five pro-choice board members can vote as a majority of that board to censure the four pro-life members mm-hmm. and say we we condemn them we condemn what they believe in and this is wrong and we want to publicly admonish them mm-hmm. and that that's going to just get traded back and forth and with censure what other and again the court will get into this but what what other penalties come along with censure is, are we talking about just censure of just public admonishment or are we talking fines? Are we talking imprisonment? That was what Clarence Thomas was kind of. Where's the line here? What what are we what kind of punishment are we OK with mm-hmm. up to what are we OK with and what crosses the line? Because if this board had the power, let's say, to lock lock them up I'm going to lock up those four pro-life um, committee members because nope, that's within the board's power to do, and they don't like what they stand for, you've been censured, and you can lock them up. That clearly is violative of their freedom of speech rights. You would think, right. But I guess I think the advocates had a hard time laying out that limitation because, well, why? Why does it need to be limited here and not there? Why is locking them up against uh, First Amendment rules, and why is censuring not against First Amendment rules? And I think... Even, you know, going so far as the locking them up seems like an outrageous and crazy scenario. But I think Kagan did a good job of kind of also discussing the, the issues with uh, censuring and having a majority that might not fully agree with what the minority has to say. All about taking away a member's staff and, and really all the things, all the, the ability to serve in the job whether it's committee assignments or floor privileges or, you know, essentially just stripping the member of any ability to do the job as uh, his representatives thought he would. Uh, again, th- those, those could pre- present difficult and maybe fact-sensitive questions, but I think at least from the historical side, you would search for analogies to those kinds of actions. Uh, my guess, as I said, is that Committee assignments and chairpersonships and any associated perks, you know, bigger office, maybe a slightly bigger staff, those would probably be fine, and I think we could probably find a historical justification for it. I mean, does this strike you as a fruitful endeavor, is to, is to, is to, is to try to figure out what they did several hundred years ago with respect to these very specific kind of punishments? I mean, maybe we'll find them and maybe we won't and maybe we'll just pick out our friends in a crowd. Uh, that, that, that could well be right, but I, I guess my point here is that, and I'll just come back to, this is a really easy case. And so on this easy case, because there is this very obvious historical tradition of censuring and expelling members, including in response to their speech on a viewpoint basis, with no suggestion that it abridged the members' freedom of speech, that is a really easy way to decide this case. And that's the kind of mode of analysis this court employed, for example, um, in uh, – Minnesota Republican Party against White, Nevada Ethics Commission against Carrigan, and uh, even the concurring opinion in that case. And because that history is so obvious, that is the sort of narrowest ground on which to resolve this case, and we think the safest ground, uh, simply because it'll just avoid any 
broad statements here that might be obvious in the easy context of this case that could be lifted out of context and inadvertently have some spillover effects. Right. So the justices have to determine. Well, and this was another question, too. Um, so the the way that this argument was packaged was let's just look at the whole censure resolution as a whole. Let's not look at all the pieces of the censure resolution, which also describe the types of penalties that can be associated with the censure. So one question that the court might look into is, should we pull that apart? Should we look at a censure being separate from the penalties? And if we do that, what types of penalties should we look at? Should we look at historical? Uh, And that's what Elena Kagan is discussing is, you know, how far back do we go to figure out which penalties are traditional um, or do we decide that penalties are a no-go and censuring is fine, but other additional penalties on top are not fine, which I don't even know if they can get to because, again, the way that this argument was brought forth is censuring as a whole, the whole resolution together. Let's not look at each individual penalty. Mm. So what do you think the court's going to come out as? I, well, I think that they are going to just focus on the censure and not the penalties. I think a censure alone is fine. And Roberts brings this up in the, I think, the clearest way. I think you already mentioned this, but he says it just pretty clearly, is that uh, by not allowing, by telling, actively telling a board or a committee that they cannot censure a member is chilling that committee's speech Right. Because they have the right, they have a First Amendment right to speak their mind of what members say. Right. And you, and generally speaking, one person's First Amendment rights don't get to trump another person's First right. Amendment rights. Yes. So if they just look at it as the, the censure itself, I think the court's on board to say, sorry, they're fine to do that. They're allowed to do that in the same way that you're allowed to say what you want and maybe they won't like it. And that's just the way it goes. Uh, but as far as the penalties go... I'm not so sure because it's a more difficult question. Again, where do you look to for traditional types of punishment that are allowable? And there are a lot of scenarios that can become sort of scary, like docking their pay or, um, you know, you know, stripping them of all of their offices and staff. And then they can't even do the job that they've been elected to do because people don't like what they have to say. You know, that seems counterintuitive. So... I think the censure is fine. I think the penalties, maybe the court will say, you can't do that. I don't know. So they they rep- um, they brought up a really good example of when the U.S. Senate censured Senator McCarthy back in the 50s. I think it was 54 or so. So McCarthyism, as most people know, is kind of like that whole stalwart uh, shooting in every direction to fight the communists, right? And Senator McCarthy was kind of was the uh, you know the, the figurehead of that movement, and because of his tactics, uh, which basically leveled accusations at anyone he didn't like, he you know he was censured by the Senate, and that was a very powerful moment. Um, and recently they've been powerful too. So back in 2019. Uh, the GOP House committee, which com- I don't remember which committee it was, but they uh, they censured and removed Representative Steve King uh, of Iowa for making some racist remark to some publication. Right? They basically kicked him out, uh, took him, took away all of his privileges, and and basically ran him out of the House. Uh, recently, within the past few weeks, I think there was a um, there was Representative Paul. Gosser, I don't know, from Arizona, who who basically posted a, um, an anime clip of stabbing AOC. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. And the House, the, the everybody in the House, they, they, they censured him. Mm-hmm. And the House Republicans are like, yep, that's no good. <laughs> so censure has been a very powerful tool within legislative bodies. Again, kids, think before you post. That's right. <laughs> And our elected officials could learn from the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. But censure's been a powerful tool to of public rebuke and, you know, basic, or placing organizational pressure 
on someone that's behaving outside the norms of that are, that are expected mm-hmm. of that organization. Now, in this specific case, he's trying to call this guy is trying to call out corruption. The board doesn't like that. Mm. Everything gets murky, right? But these these um, there's a line, and it, the court's gonna have to find it. But that line is basically, I, I think, is going to be where the, where a fact finder can find that speech is chilled. Mm. Non. But here's the thing. Are we chilling speech of Paul Gosser mm-hmm. by censoring him? Like, now you're not going to post any more cartoons of you stabbing AOC or Ilhan Omar, all of the Congress people he probably doesn't like. Uh, probably that'll chill it. But... Um, that's why it's so tough. It's going to chill speech, but how much speech is enough? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think just pure censure, censuring, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think the court's going to find that because like you said, Roberts. I think Alito brought it up too. Like, yeah. this seems like an easy case. Yeah. Um, you know, they said something, the committee said something back. Who cares? Like, yeah, are we good now? What, what, what does that have to do with us? Right. And There's they, no I think. Freedom of speech issue there. Right. I think that, and I think that's, they might narrowly rule mm-hmm. on that because I think everybody can get behind that. Right. And, but yeah, the question is, do other types of penalties chill speech? Maybe. And maybe they won't touch that. Maybe they'll just kind of bring it up and then say, we're not going to decide that today um, because it was not really directly brought in front of the court, that question. Uh, what was brought in front of the court was just censuring in general. Yep. And I agree. I think that the court is going to say, look, censuring, long tradition, and at its basis, it's just not infringing a yep. person's right to speak. And if we were to say it was, it's now infringing the committee's right, right. to speak. That's a problem. Yeah. Other penalties may, in fact, infringe on uh, one's right to freedom of speech, mm-hmm. such as imprisonment, which, which right. Justice Thomas brought up. Yes. However... You know, at the limit, the the scope of what that would look like should be determined on a case by case basis. Yeah. So probably very narrow, probably not even going to touch the issue of like penalties and stuff like that. Um, But we'll see who writes it. I guess that's how it always is. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on who writes it, they might get into that stuff a little bit more than they probably should. But that was that case. Thrilling. Very thrilling. I mean, it was interesting. I walked into it thinking I do not care at all. But it does bring up a pretty interesting issue. You know, what if your committee just doesn't like you and doesn't like the things that you say, regardless of what they are, or if they're right. actually bad, and they're going to censure you for it? That's kind of crappy. Yeah. The hypotheticals that you can come up with because mm-hmm. of this problem are interesting, yeah. at least. And definitely lends to some anti-American values type. Right. You, you know, always get that little you know, feeling of unease when you hear that someone can't speak for one reason or another, or they're afraid to speak for one reason or another. It seems very anti-American. Right. But when it's not necessarily stopping you from speaking, it's just someone else speaking and saying, I don't like the things you say. Yeah, that's, that, that is the American way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back for our second case. And we're back. So, before we get into our next case, I have a little bit of trivia for you. Oh? I do. You have trivia? What? I know. So, Bill, there's one phrase that, despite what the argument is about, despite what the justices might feel, or how many conservative or liberal justices are on the bench, there's one phrase that will appear in every single argument. What is that phrase? May it please the court? Yes. Well, it's Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. May it please the court. Yes. Do you know where that came from? I have no idea. Well, I know the Chief Justice. That's his title. But the may it please the court part, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't really either. What? (laughs) Sorry. But I can tell you that it does date back Mm -hmm. pre-America. So it must have started back in England. must have been a tradition from back then. Uh, it has shown up in writings from Ben Johnson in the 1600s, the early 1600s, 
and it was also used in Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1831. So we know it's pretty old and traditional. In the United States, there have been a couple of different versions that have been used throughout the 19th century. The most common was May It Please the Court, but there were other versions, including May It Please Your Honors and If the Court Please. But in 1960s, yeah, in the mid-1960s, the clerk of the U.S. Supreme Court wrote out these guidelines Um, They are called the Guide for Counsel, which you can find on the Supreme Court's website. They update them every now and again to, you know, just fill in any gaps and make any updates that they need to have. But it specifically says in there that the correct phrasing is Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court. And the question before this guide came out was always is the and after Mr. Chief Justice necessary, or could you just say, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court? Apparently now, no, you need that and. The and is part of the phrase. Uh, But prior to this guide coming out, there have been recorded references to people saying it without the and. But if you're going before the Supreme Court bill anytime soon, you should know that the and is actually part of the phrase. Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court. May it please the court. So I can't say... Yo, yo, what's happening, dogs? Homeboy Chiefy. Homeboy yo, Chiefy. And his peeps. Chiefy and your peeps, you dig? Anyways. Yeah, no, I can't even do it. No. no. I'm glad you're not going before the, before the Supreme Court anytime soon. But how about, Bill, what about that Mr. portion? How about it, yeah. Well, it's never really been an issue before, right? Yeah. False. It has? It has because there was one day, one occasion, where Chief Justice Rehnquist was out sick and Justice Stevens was also absent. So the person who was presiding over the... Sandra Day O'Connor? Yes. The courtroom so she was, was the, she was the acting Chief Justice? Mm-hmm. And so in that case, because everyone who was there was like, crap, what do I say? <laughs> I can't call her Mr. Chief Justice. So advocates were advised just to say Justice O'Connor and may it please the court. Uh, She's not technically the chief. Well, right. And there weren't any arguments before there. I think it was just motions and hearings and stuff like that anyway. But the question moving forward is if we ever got a female chief uh, justice of the Supreme Court, what would we say at the beginning? How how would we phrase it? Because we can't say Mr. Chief Justice. We say Ms. Chief Justice, and may please the court. Be strange. Uh, it could be, could be Ms. Or maybe just we'll drop change the it. or drop the, the. Is it a salutation? The title? Yeah, just drop the title. Right, and just Chief say Justice. Chief Justice, and may please the court. Or you could say Chief Justice in their name, like Chief Justice um, Barrett. Yeah. And may it please the court. That sort of thing. So that's an option. But <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was interesting. While we were listening to the arguments today, I thought, huh, I wonder how long they've been using. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, because you hear it in every single argument. And at this point, you just kind of don't think about it anymore. But judges, you know, who are at you know state supreme courts or uh, other levels of courts, mm-hmm. um, I wonder what they think about it, or if they even really do think about it. But I want I would assume that it is jarring when an advocate doesn't start their argument that way. If they just dive right into their argument, you're probably thrown off guard. Like, whoa, something's missing here. But otherwise, they probably don't think about it. I never thought about it until randomly today. I thought, huh, I wonder how long we've been doing that. And I guess it's forever. 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 And that's my trivia. Excellent. So now let's move on to our second case, which is City of Austin, Texas versus Reagan National Advertising of Texas Incorporated. So the question before the court here is about signage, which comes up a lot in First Amendment issues. Um, If you do a lot of reading in the First Amendment realm, which I don't, Bill does, but either way, you kind of need to know this stuff when you take the bar exam too, because uh, commercial and non-commercial types of speech can be regulated in different ways. Um, But signs specifically have just had a historical, they're you know, path of their own that they've gone through because, you know, what you can put on a sign and post in the town's green is going to be up to, uh, you know, some rules and regulations. So how do those rules made? 
how are they regulated? Um, the question before the court here is whether or not Austin's city code, uh, the distinction between on-premise signs, which can be digitized, and off-premise signs, which cannot be digitized, constitutes a facially unconstitutional content-based regulation. And to dive into the facts of the case a little bit here, Reagan National Advertising of Austin uh, owns billboards that you see like on the side of the highway, and they display commercial and non-commercial messages, and they recently filed an application, well not recently, this was years ago, this has been going on for a while, but they filed an application with the city of Austin to update their billboards and turn them into digital billboards. Um, however, the city is basically done with billboards and they don't like billboards really anyway because they're a distraction and there's a lot of reasons why maybe you don't want billboards on the side of the highway because they can cause traffic disruptions if they're too distracting or anything like that but they've essentially grandfathered in their billboards so there can't really be changes like digitization in the first place but specifically Austin their city code says that a on-premise sign can be digitized, but an off-premise sign cannot be digitized. So that's the question before the court. Is that in itself a content-based regulation? So on-premise means that it's a sign that's on the property of the thing that's being advertised for. So Bill's store has a sign that says Bill's store. But the billboard on the highway that says, come to Bill's store, is not on his premise, so that would be an off-premise sign. So those types of signs in Austin cannot be digitized, but the sign that's directly on his shop out front of Bill's store can be digitized. When it reached the district court, the court ruled in favor of the city and said, not content-based, it's content-neutral. doesn't matter what your sign says. You just can't digitize it if it's off your premise, and you can digitize it if it's on your premise. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, however, felt the complete opposite, and they reversed it and said, no, that is content-based, uh, and therefore it's subject to strict scrutiny, and it can't withstand strict scrutiny. So now the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has to deal with this issue of signs, signs, Everywhere are signs. Let's backtrack a little bit about okay. signs. So you you keep saying content based, right? Yes, you explain that a little. So bit let's more explain. Too. Let's let's explain that. So courts have held that speech cannot be restricted on content based regulations. So content based, most people think of it as if you have to read the sign to figure out whether it's banned or not by an ordinance, then you it's probably content based, meaning it's subject to strict scrutiny, the highest level of scrutiny um, that a court can review a law on. So if it's content based, let's say I'm not going to allow signs that advertise Catholic churches, it's clearly content based. Mm -hmm. Then you have to you go through a strict scrutiny review, which the government has to show uh, the law furthers is necessary to further a compelling interest of the state. And that that law is narrowly tailored, which different contexts means different things. But generally speaking, it means that you're doing it with the least restrictive way possible. Like this is the oh, this is the best, least restrictive way that I can possibly achieve that interest. Mm -hmm. That's most laws. If they're going up against strict scrutiny, they typically fail. Mm -hmm. Typically. Yeah, it's very hard to pass that. Test. Very hard to pass that. So if it's content based restrictions, then you're looking at strict scrutiny. Mm -hmm. If you're if it's not. Uh, then it's just under if it's if it's just hey you know it's not based on content but it is a speech regulation it typically goes under intermediate scrutiny which means the government has to show an important state state interest that they're going to further with that law so the important interest here would be hey i want to clean up the blight in town i don't want all of these you know big dis distracting signs mm -hmm. they cause accidents they make the town not look the way that the community wants to look uh, that is that could be found to be an important government interest and they have a little more power to regulate. Mm -hmm. So here the question is we're we're differentiating in Austin's law between off-premise sign uh, off-premises sign 
and an on-premises sign. And we're also also differentiating between digital and conventional mm -hmm. signage. So are either of those content-based? Obviously, on-off-premises is geographic. Mm -hmm. So that's easy. Typically, it would be easy to tell. However, hard to tell if the uh, if the sign... You have to look at the, what the sign says to see if it matches what the sign says on the building below it. Right. So that treads that line of content-based. Because mm -hmm. you, you... Right. Again, like you mentioned earlier... The determining factor typically with content-based signs is you have to read it to know what the content is. Correct. That you're regulating. Correct. And here, yeah, you technically have to read the sign to know if it's on-premise or off-premise, but that's that's the only tie to the content. Yes, and digital is kind of easy to tell. I don't think you need to... I mean, you're looking at the content of the sign... But it doesn't really matter what the content of the sign is. It's digital or it's not digital. Yeah. It's plugged in or it's not. I don't think that's, yeah. Yeah, that's not, that's not that's as big. That's pretty content neutral. That's pretty content neutral. So that's the question before the court. And I think Alito summed it up really, really well uh, with the difference between um, how we should think about this is whether it's content neutral or not content neutral. Uh, is the Austin Code content-based as applied to the billboards? that are at issue here. Perhaps I don't understand the, the underlying facts of the case, but as I understand it, your client has billboards. They are off-premises in the conventional sense of the term. They are not in front of a building. Uh, Austin doesn't say you have to take them down. It just says you can't digitize them. An enforcement officer could determine whether you're in compliance or not in compliance without reading what is on the billboard. If everything on the billboard were written in Chinese and the enforcement officer can't read Chinese, the enforcement officer could still say, you're in violation because they're digitized. That wouldn't be a content-based distinction. What, it, what am I missing? So, Justice Alito, the critical fact here is that the trigger for whether or not we can digitize our signs is whether or not our signs, as they exist, advertise on-premises or off-premises activities. If they advertise uh, off-premises activities, they are forbidden unless they are grandfathered. Our signs are conceitedly in that category. They're grandfathered, so they're permitted, even though all of everything, uh, as I understand it, again, correct me if I don't understand the facts, everything that is on your client's signs relates to uh, something that is off-premises, right? In yes, the conventional that, sense, not in the, the peculiar sense in which Austin defines the term. Well, in both senses, because the signs advertise activities that take place off-premises, and that is what uh, renders them uh, uh, not permitted unless they are grandfathered. And again, that is why we can't digitize our signs. So Justice Alito, just to sort of explain for a minute how all of this operates, when we apply to digitize our signs, the reason that we can't do that is because we are not allowed to uh, alter signs that are non-conforming or grandfathered. The sole reason that our signs are non-conforming or grandfathered is because they are classified as off-premises signs. So our submission to the court is, first, that that distinction is content-based, that because we were not permitted to digitize our signs because they were off-premises, the regulation should be subject to strict scrutiny. And second, that the digitization ban itself, which is, after all, the regulation that we were challenging, is invalid under strict scrutiny. So Alito is kind of a thought leader on the court in this because he wrote a concurrence in a case called Reed. Reed specified, this is another sign case, but Reed said you can distinguish between, in your regulations, you can distinguish between off-premises signs and on-premises signs. And it won't be, it wouldn't be content-based. Mm -hmm. The Fifth Circuit kind of ignored it, kind of like maneuvered around it. But I think this is the opportunity for the court to kind of clarify that whether on or off-premises is content neutral. Mm -hmm. And I, that 
seems logical in my mind. Like, that just seems to make sense. Like he mentioned with the, the Chinese signs, doesn't matter what language the content is in, you can tell typically if it's on-premise or off-premise. A billboard that's written in a language I don't can't read, I still realize it's off-premise because it's very unlikely, unless there is a store underneath it, it's very unlikely that it's on-premise. Um, it doesn't matter what the message on the sign says, it's just the location of the sign itself. I think the area where it blurs slightly is when they were talking about, you know, churches or meeting halls or uh, locations that might want to advertise things that are not just their own location. So typically, you own a business, you're just going to advertise your business. You're not going to advertise your neighbor's business because whatever, you need your business. Yeah, but what happens if that business has multiple locations? Or you are you have a, in a, a partnership with other businesses in the area? Or you're, um, you know, a church and you are promoting your... Uh, events that you have going on here, but you also want to promote an event that's going on somewhere else. You can't do that. Like maybe there's, I think someone brought up the example of there's like a an interfaith sort of event that's going to take place at a different church. Right. Or, the Catholic, Yeah. The Catholic church and the synagogue down the street are going right. to have a tag sale. Right. So you can't advertise for that event on your own property because it's taking place somewhere else. So that's where it blurs the line a little bit. You have a digital sign. You can't use it for certain things. That seems like a problem. And, okay, if it's not content-based, it goes through intermediate scrutiny. And mm. I think what Lamar and Reagan National Advertising are saying is even if you put this through intermediate scrutiny, there's no important interest here. Right. And that's and that, honestly, that is a, it, typically that's a finding for a lower court to make. Mm -hmm. is what let's, let's have, And there wasn't much discussion around it in the oral argument is what um you know what level they were mostly talking about what level of scrutiny should we look at this under versus mm -hmm. um could you pass does the on? does the city of austin have an important government interest i think they and <clears throat> we'll we'll get there on my prediction but what was one of your favorite parts of the oral argument all right so we need to go through all of the briarisms and i'm excited for this because i feel like it's been a while since i've played any briar on at least this season i haven't really played much briar but he went off today he was quite in an interesting state briar was very briar today all right so uh, i'll tell you why we uh, let the uh, home the, the my own kale shop i sell fried kale uh and right outside i want a big picture of kale that lights up okay it's mine this is my shop I want to decorate it the way I want. A strong interest. I don't have the same interest in what the billboard 40 miles outside the town says about my kale shop. Okay, there's your difference. And uh, the grandfather is because we love grandfathers. Okay, there we are. And uh, that's historic. And go back to the year two, you'll discover those kinds of distinctions. So they're distinctions. And uh, therefore, I have to get to the content-based. And now I'm back at Justice Alito's question. Content-based? Hey, the whole SEC is content-based. And what about the infinite number of FDA rules that say you better disclose how much sodium there is? That's not content, sodium? It isn't, it's salt. But salt, by the way, is a kind of content. And it's not good for you. But uh, regardless, regardless, FDA, SEC, try the energy world. You better disclose, Mr. Smith Energy, uh, how much coal you're burning. Okay? And we can go on through the whole U.S. code. So as you know, my conclusion is this makes no sense. It does make sense in the context of where you're trying to do time, manner, and circumstance. It does make sense in the context of where you're trying to see if it's viewpoint discrimination. But as to the rest of it, no. Okay, what do you want to say to me? Just say, I say, just get on the boat, it's passed, sailed, uh, do your best, or what do you want to say? Justice Breyer, you've been nothing if not consistent in your view that the court should not treat... If it's one person, so therefore... <laughs> Well, uh, uh, let me let me address your view directly. So that's obviously. Do you know who's laughing throughout? Is that Clarence Thomas oh, or is that definitely Clarence Thomas? I'm pretty sure because he's sitting right next to Breyer. He would be sitting right next to Breyer because of the order of 
Or it would be um or it'd be the chief. Oh, it could be. It sounded to me though, it, listening close now, it sounded to me like Thomas. Yeah, because Thomas is such a giggly guy. Yeah, and he just <laughs> loves that Briar. <laughs> well, he's been on the court with Briar for a long time. Right. So it's, so just, he's, oh, he's it's just like classic Stephen. Briarisms, <laughs> nonsense. Um, so yeah, that part was obviously amazing where he has his fried kale shot, but then again, he comes in later with another zinger because the the advocate is trying to talk about how it's not going to matter things like sodium and those uh, required content, uh, required speech aren't going to be an issue. Um, don't worry, Justice Breyer. So I don't think that you would have to alter uh, any of this court's well-established case law with regard to those sorts of regulations. And at least as I understood the examples, I think they are in the main all examples of compelled disclosures, and that's particularly, I think, most... There are plenty of the others. Peanut butter. Every lawyer in Washington before you were born was hired to argue yes or no that real, genuine peanut butter must have lard in it, otherwise it sticks to the roof of your mouth and isn't peanut butter. I don't know how the case came out, but it did say what could be labeled peanut butter. Okay. If that isn't content-based, what is? And there are a lot like that. So, again, I think with regard to compelled disclosure, the way that this court's case law operates, as I understand it, is that outside the context of commercial speech, the court generally applies strict scrutiny to compelled disclosures. But in the context of commercial speech, which I think would cover most of the examples like the SEC and so forth, the court applies the Zouderer test, which is a lower level of of scrutiny, you know, probably closer to intermediate scrutiny. And I don't think that the court would have to, again, disturb any of that case law. Those were the examples that Justice Breyer cited in his concurring opinion in Reed. Could we make a menu of Justice Breyer's kale shop, fried kale shop, but on the menu would be fried kale with real peanut butter, lard included? Well, it has to be if it's peanut butter. That's right. If you're going to say it's peanut butter, it's got to have lard in it, apparently. I, I didn't know that. Um, before you were born. <laughs> But it's funny because my grandparents always talk about how peanut butter sticks to the roof of your mouth. Anyway, um, so but so this is clearly the advocate for the advertising, the signs, the billboards, who's arguing that this is obviously content-based um, exclusions that are happening here. And you don't need to worry about all of the rest of the law because you don't even need to touch it. There are already rules for commercial types of speech. And those usually are not tested against strict scrutiny. Commercial speech is usually tested against intermediate because of, you know, all of these other regulations that are at play and that clearly the government has an interest in regulating uh, paid for speech that's going to be seen by the public. And so it just doesn't doesn't get the same protection that general First Amendment speech has. It has a lower level. So don't even worry about any of that, Justice Breyer. We don't need to discuss that right now. All you need to say is that this on-premise, off-premise stuff is content-based. But the lard. What do you think, Bill? How's the court going to land? <sighs> I think that they're going to uphold Austin's regulation. Their ordinance, excuse me. Um, I think that the Fifth Circuit went a little, not totally rogue, but they went a little off the path of Reed, mm-hmm. the opinion where I mentioned Alito concurred. Um, I think they're going because if they don't, it kind of opens up a it opens up a lot of litigation. Mm-hmm. It opens up a lot of sign companies going to be suing municipalities for hey, I can put my sign up now, and this is, I think there's going to be just a lot of litigation. I think. It is content neutral. I think it is goes on. I think it would go under intermediate scrutiny. I think, I think SCOTUS will say review this under intermediate scrutiny and remand back to the Fifth Circuit for further findings consistent with that opinion. They'll have to find if it fits the definition of intermediate scrutiny. But I think I don't know. I don't have enough information to say whether it does or doesn't. But I think that's how SCOTUS will land. What about you? Yep, I agree. I even have a hard time trying to, in my head, create a hypothetical that seems wrong because it just, it naturally seems content neutral. 
like you mentioned, it doesn't matter what the message is, what language it's written in. It's just you can't have this type of um, this type of sign here. You can have it here. Uh, so Bob's store, uh, Bob, Bill's store. Um, you know, you can have it digital on your building itself, but if you want to say stop at Bill's store on the highway, it can't be digital. You know, that's it. I think people's problem is, is this an important, is there an important enough reason for this rule? Well, that's I think that's the real problem because I think the right. closest thing They're to saying, a, why are you? Yeah. The closest thing to a hypothetical that makes people feel weird is that church example mm -hmm. that I think uh, the chief brought up is, you know, there's a church advertising an interfaith event and both churches events are listed on the bill on the digital billboard of one church. Mm -hmm. that technically is an, is an out of ordinance digital sign advertising something for somewhere else that seems wrong to me but if i think about why that's wrong it's not about whether it's content neutral because you don't need to know what the ad's saying you just need to know this is who it's for and this is who it's for which again toes that line of content neutral but doesn't matter what the content is it's out of ordinance it's whether or not does the city have an important reason to to disallow it mm -hmm. i don't think so but that's up. I mean, I don't have all the facts based right. on the facts I've seen. I don't think it's important enough, but I don't, but I don't, I do think the ordinance is content neutral, right? Meaning intermediate scrutiny. Yeah. And I think the argument for the state is going to, you know, the beautification of driving down the highway and not seeing all of these crazy, wild, nonsensical billboards that are all digitized and there's like videos playing and stuff like that it's just a they openly ugly. they openly admitted the purpose of this ordinance was to reduce the amount of content reduce the amount of speech right yeah absolutely and and i think that's what i think it might have been gorsuch said well why don't you just have a cap on how many billboards there can be per square mile mm. and you've got to apply for a permit like isn't that a le uh, isn't that kind of a lesser restrictive way of doing things easier way to do it isn't yeah. that an easier way of doing things what if, what if wink wink have. wink and they're like absolutely not yeah they might other places have tried that and it still still caused issues in the end there were still just a proliferation of signs that they didn't want in these areas right well maybe they picked the wrong number i don't know yeah i don't know but again we don't have all that those facts in front of us it seems to me that that argument has teeth yeah and i yeah, i even get the you just don't want all of these ugly signs you know that's not what adver people who are advertising or selling advertisements want to hear nope. but i get that and i kind of agree with that i don't want to see all of that and the distraction as well like the safety factor for traffic yep. um, i am very easily distracted so if you have some kind of moving sign that's digitalized and is playing a video or something i'm gonna look away from the road <laughs> that's maybe just me but uh that is a distraction that can be a safety hazard so i think there are a couple of important interests that the state could certainly argue in an intermediate scrutiny case um but i definitely agree i don't think the court's going to bring it to the strict scrutiny level because no it it's so hard to say that it's content based. Yeah, it not really only is it matter. not only is it commercial, is very borderline kind of not content based. Right. It doesn't matter if you're a church or if you're just a, a Elks club and you're advertising for things happening off premise. Like it doesn't matter who you are. You just can't. Like Alito said, you could that, that sign could be in a completely different language. You could right. tell if it's for that store or not, and yep. an enforcement officer could say yay or nay, based off of nothing to do with the text of right. the sign. Technically, you have to look at the sign to know if it's on-premise or off-premise. But it's looking at it the same as content-based. Right. And, and that's, that's what I question. think the court's basically saying no. And it has yeah. said no in the past. Yeah. And that's where Breyer's getting all crazy about... But my kale shop. You have to read the laws. Like, that's just inherent. You need to read it to know what it says. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's content-based. But that's always right. been the rule, especially in law school, because it makes it easy for law students to sort of grapple yes. with, is it's content-based if you have to read it. But that's not that's, technically always... It's close, yeah, but that's it's not... Yeah. As it's an, an imperfect understanding of it. Yes. Yeah, here you have to read it to know, oh, Bill's shop. This isn't Bill's shop. This is Venetia's shop. She's just advertising for Bill's shop. Yeah. And it says, don't go to Bill's shop. It's terrible. Well, that's content-based. That should definitely be illegal. <laughs> so, yeah. So, those are two First Amendment cases that probably you most people wouldn't even really think of the First Amendment issues that arise nope. but there there it is nope. other things the court needs to grapple with that are probably not very exciting 
Yep, and both both opinions should be out this summer. Um, like a movie blockbuster that's coming out this summer. Coming this summer. Two opinions where Justice Breyer will talk about peanut butter and kale. Oh, I hope he writes this one. I, if, if he writes this one, I will be so happy. Yep. And so would Clarence Thomas. So he'd be giggling the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I have to say about that. Same here. All right. So we are not going to be recording next weekend because happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hmm. We will be gorging ourselves with turkey. Uh, but we will be back the following week. Yep. So until then, tune in next time. Check out our website if you want to. Send us an email with a question. Uh, and otherwise, have a wonderful holiday season and eat a lot of food. Happy holidays. Bye.